We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Well, greetings to you on this first Sunday of Advent. This is a season in which we renew our hope in the sure and certain return of Jesus, which is the only solution to the world's and our heart's many problems. Uh, we also think as we anticipate the return of Christ about being ready for his return, which means putting things in order, specifically casting off the sin that clings so closely in our hearts and our lives. This morning we are continuing our series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1 on our consideration of the cross. And as we do so, we are going to make a direct hit on a sin that all of us wrestle with in some way. This is the sin of pride. More specifically, perhaps the sin of vainglory. Actually, these two, pride and vainglory, are closely related. They compete for a spot on the list of the seven deadly sins throughout Christian tradition. Uh, and they're, of course, deeply related. Pride is this need to be better than your neighbor about seeking the highest place, or a, at least a place that's higher than that person over there. And vainglory is about needing your neighbor to recognize you as someone special, gifted, or worthy, whether you actually are or not, that you want the, res the recognition, the praise of others. Pride is generally the soil out of which our pursuits of vainglory grow or self-glorification would be another way we could think about vainglory. In our pride, we crave the esteem and recognition of our peers, of our colleagues, of our friends, and even of our enemies. This is the reason that every time we tell the story about the fish that we caught, the fish gets bigger and bigger. We want to be seen as something or someone by those who are listening, as powerful or wealthy or wise or holy beautiful, a gifted communicator, a compelling author, a talented musician, a hardworking student, a sensitive, caring mother, or a present father, or a dutiful son or daughter. We want to be praised by others, and possibly even envied. And so if we get that glory and that recognition, then we think, well, we're arriving. We're worthy and admired, and that is the case until we need more, because we always need more. And this is a bit of the way that the world works. And we all know this. Every one of us struggles with this. That's why we're so quick to hide our faults and so quick to promote our, uh, our successes when we talk with others. It's a part of the human nature. But this is not so with God and with his spirit-breathed new creation kingdom people. As we've seen already in our study on the cross in this section of scripture, God's renewing and reconciling work undermines and subverts the sinful ways of the world, whether in ancient Corinth or in Boston today. And in our study of this passage last week, we saw that Paul points to two things, to the cross itself, to the action of the cross, and to the simple heralding of that cross in the gospel, not with Greco-Roman rhetoric, but with a simple proclamation, that in these two ways, God is working to subvert the systems of value, honor, wealth, and status, or worth, I should say, and status. As we turn to verses 26 through 29 today, Paul brings a third piece of evidence of God's subversive ways to the foreground. The members 
of the Corinthian church themselves. I invite you to open up your Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look with me as we study verses 26 through 29. We'll consider three things as we look at this passage. First, who they are and who they are not in verse 26. Then what God was doing in this, in selecting them, verses 27 and 28. And then third, why God was doing this in verse 29. So we'll begin in verse 26, this question of who are these people to whom Paul is writing. Paul urges the Corinthians to look at themselves for a moment. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, or brothers and sisters. What will they see? Well, Paul gives three negatives. Not many of you were wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul's saying, all right, let's be honest. You, at least the majority of you Corinthian believers, were of little to no significance in any of the cultural systems of worth, value, honor, or status. You were not wise. You were not powerful, and you didn't have good pedigree. You were not of noble birth. In other words, God did not start the church in Corinth with the corporate-sponsored influencers of YouTube, or world changers, or the movers and shakers. Let's put this a little bit more in the vernacular of our day, and I'm going to come close to home here, but know that I love you and you are my friends. God did not start the church in Corinth with Harvard Law School grads or venture capitalists or investment bankers or tenured professors or professional athletes or beautiful models or seminary professors. When Paul urges them to consider their calling, he's drawing attention to the fact that they are none of these things, that they lack status and worth in the eyes of the world. Most of them had very unimpressive resumes. They were not the best and brightest. They were not on time's list of 30 under 30. Quite the opposite. And let's acknowledge that this evidence to which Paul points is fitting with the pattern of the way that God has always been at work in the world. Consider just the ministry of Jesus and who he chooses to be his close-in disciples. He doesn't choose the religious professionals, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's, that's who you would choose if you were going to choose the respectable people of the day. No, he chooses fishermen, laborers. Remember the way that they were referred to after they began their spirit-inspired and empowered ministry in Jerusalem following the day of Pentecost? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. What Paul is saying to the status-seeking church in Corinth is this. You fit God's pattern. While the world may be impressed with important people and their positions and wealth and titles, God is not. His redemptive work is not dependent upon them, and he's intentional about that, which we'll unpack in a moment. Let me say to you, if you are someone here this morning who doesn't think that you have the right status, a lofty title, 
a weighty position, the right resume. I really hope you're encouraged by what Paul says here. And I really hope that the church will be a place of encouragement for you because here in the church, it doesn't matter who you are or are not in the systems of worth and value and status in the world. Or at least it shouldn't matter. God and God alone calls, empowers, gifts, and sends. Not the credential-giving, status-making, worth-declaring institutions and systems of our world. Many of you know this verse from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, not by power, and we could faithfully, I think, add, not by any other status or worth that the world can give us, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God is not impressed with our credentials or our worldly status, and he never has been. Psalm 147, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, and he delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. Remember the selection of David in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel looked at Eliab, David's older brother, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Can we please, in light of this point, be more critical of mission strategies that solely prioritize those with worldly status, wealth, or promise? Everyone needs to be reached in our world, including the powerful and wealthy and famous. And there are many in the church who do that with a pure heart. But I wonder if we look in the aggregate... My guess would be, and I haven't looked up the statistics, that the amount of Christian mission money spent per undergraduate student at an Ivy League school this year is staggeringly, staggeringly more than the amount spent for students at state schools or community colleges. And I just need to ask the question, I think we all do, is this okay? Second point. What was God doing Verses 27 and 28, when he chose the Corinthians. His next point, Paul's, is that this composition of the Corinthian church wasn't just an accident. This didn't just happen to be the way it happened. Rather, this was a reflection of God's intentional choice and strategy through which God was subverting the ways of the world. Verse 27 begins with a conjunction, but, as the ESV translates it, it might be better to say, and fair to say, on the contrary. Instead of working in this worldly way, on the contrary, God is at work in a different way. Doing what, we ask? Well, Paul makes two observations about the actions of Almighty God in making this particular choice in Corinth of these particular people. One observation in verse 27 and a related one in verse 28. And they're both abrupt and a bit jarring. So I'd say let's let them jar us a bit and shake us a bit. First, verse 27. We learn that God was shaming the wise and the strong. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
The verb here for to shame means, yes, to shame or to put to shame also could be understood as to humiliate or to bring low. And by bringing renewal through the subversive action of the cross and by starting with a community of people who are mostly of low worldly status, God is signaling loud and clear in front of the whole world that was enamored with the wise and the strong. And I ask, has anything changed in 2,000 years? We are still enamored with the wise and the strong. Before that entire watching world, God is, God is signaling that in his kingdom, this worldly status means and counts for nothing. If anything... High status in the world is a spiritual liability. You might remember Jesus' words after he interacts with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the disciples are like, this sounds impossible. And Jesus says, it is impossible with man, but with God all things are possible. Nonetheless, our status is actually can be a, a liability spiritually for reasons that I trust will become apparent as we continue. But God's salvific new creation work is independent of the gifts and status of those who are typically at the center of the consequential actions and events of the world. Normally, these people were the ones making the decisions. They had the VIP seats at all the events. They were the life of the party. But God works in a way in the gospel that subverts all of that, and that brings the wise and the strong low, that puts them to shame. What do we do with this, that, with this reality that God would put people to shame or bring them low? Well, he did this so to make an emphatic statement that his ways, as he says in Isaiah 55 verse 9, are higher than our ways. Status in the world strokes our pride and can lead us to ignore the giver of every good gift. Worldly strength and wisdom and the status they produce is irrelevant to God's new work through the shocking way of the cross. Further, we tend to think that when we shame someone or humiliate someone, this is an act of unkindness, of being mean. And typically we're right. That is the case if we were to do this. That's not what is going on when God shames the wise and the strong. In fact, it's just the opposite here. There is a tremendous grace given to the strong and the wise through God's humiliating, subversive action on the cross. Such shaming helps them to confront the lie that these things that they possess, wisdom, wealth, intellect, athletic, athleticism, beauty, slick speech, fame, that these things make them more important, weighty, or valuable than others who are lower down on these systems of value or worth. God's work on the cross strips them of their prideful position and invites them to humbly enter into this new creation community where worldly status is of no worth or value, where every member of the community, while differently gifted by God and differently positioned by God in the culture of the day, every person is of equal worth and value, beloved by the head of this community whose name is Jesus, and therefore also equally valuable to every other member in the community. This is what the body metaphor that Paul will use later in this letter in chapter 12 means. There's no one part of the body that is insignificant or inconsequential or lacking in value and worth. It's a beautiful, world-subverting picture one of the signs of this equality in the church 
is that we all get to share in the same table, and later in this service, we will come to do that together. Each one, irrespective of our status in the eyes of the world, each one of us comes to the same table to partake of the same bread given to us through the same Lord Jesus himself. And I want you to remember that today as you see one another coming forward, that we are level in the body of Christ. And if anyone is high, even and especially in the church, then, the, then Jesus himself says, if you are high, you must become low, the servant of all, the slave of all. That's how his kingdom works. It is a different kind of community. God starts here in this way in Corinth to humble the exalted. It's in a sense as if God is saying, look, that's how the way it works out there, but that is not how the way it works in my house. Not here. How tragic is it that sometimes we lose sight of this chief insight of the gospel? It's not uncommon in large churches like Park Street to hear critiques being made that the only way to really serve in leadership in churches like this is to be successful in one's career. That should obviously not be the case. And for a moment, let me address that what Paul is saying here should also indicate that there's no such thing as an important church and an unimportant church. And let me address, if I can, just the, the reputation of our own church as a place of intellectual sophistication and significant influence within evangelicalism for the past hundred years or so. We ought to rightly and gladly embrace and not reject the particular gifts, strengths, and role that God has given to this church over the centuries. These are unique blessings and responsibilities which we are called to steward well. But we must equally beware of the way in which the enemy of our souls can use these very things to puff us up, to think of ourselves as somehow better than other churches in Boston, even if that's subtle, or to overestimate our value to God and our importance within the kingdom ecosystem of this city or this nation. Any sense of pride in this is completely misplaced. We are to steward the unique calling and history that God has given to Park Street Church, of course, and we are to take this up within the community as we walk on the way of the cross, pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But we are prone, are we not? Is our flesh not prone to be so proud of this history and role that it can tempt us to develop an ungodly sense of spiritual significance, worth, or even superiority? And when this happens, this is not of God. This is of the enemy, who will use anything, anything in our lives, corporately or individually, even and most often perhaps the very good things, to render us ineffective, unfruitful, and chained in the bondage of sin. That's verse 27. Second, verse 28, we learn that God chooses these particularly low-status people in Corinth to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, what are the things that are? My contention here is the best way to read verse 28 is that they are the opposite of what the people in Corinth are. So in verse 28, Paul describes the people in Corinth as low, 
despised in the world and things that are not. This would mean to say that the things that are are the things that are high and exalted. They are the opposite of the despised things in the world. They are the praised and honored things of the world. And the things that are are those that are opposite of the things that are not. These are the things that would have status and weightiness in the eyes of the world. These people who were a big deal in the culture, God brings to nothing. The verb here that is translated to bring to nothing can mean to, to nullify or to cause something to lose its power or effectiveness. It is to make something powerless. Well, how does God do this? Well, he inaugurates and accomplishes his new work around these people of low status without the need of people of high status and in a way that gives no value to their present power, status, or honor in the systems of the world. This would be a bit like showing up at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway on Memorial Day weekend for the big race. And at race time, all of the Indy cars somehow are stuck in their pits and missing a tire. And then this lone VW bug putters out onto the race course, shades here to Herbie, and goes around the track 500 miles, just barely completes the mileage and gets the checkered flag at the end of the race. God's work in the kingdom reflects a massive and shocking reversal of our expectations of how the world works. It turns things on its head. The star is brought to nothing while the lowly are lifted up and raised up. This is what Mary celebrates in a very Advent-appropriate passage of the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Those are themes of reversal, of subversion, of turning the world upside down. God worked this way in the gospel. Yes, but this is how God has always been at work as well. He chose the, the prisoner Joseph to deliver the Egyptians and his own people from famine. He chose the people of Israel, as we read in Deuteronomy 7, despite the fact that they were the smallest and weakest of the nations around them. He did that very well intentionally that he might show his glorious power in their rescue and that through them the world itself would receive blessing and rescue. God chooses the humble Davids with their slings and stones to topple the Goliaths with their shields and spears. And this is how God works in the world. Why? Our third point, verse 29. The answer to why, Paul gives us in verse 29, so that no human being, or really the underlying word is flesh, no flesh, might boast in the presence or before God. God's trifecta of the cross, the simple proclamation of the cross without Greco-Roman rhetoric, which the Corinthians valued so much, and the membership of the Corinthian church, people who were low and of despised status. This trifecta subverts the values of the world, and God does this. He subverts these systems and values. Why? to keep us from boasting that somehow this new revolutionary countercultural community and our place within it has something to do with our worldly status, location, or endowments. The only big deal in this new community is Jesus. And he will share his glory with no one else. 
not me and not you. To be on the inside of this new creation work is to be there solely because of his sheer gift. A gift that was not calibrated to your prior worth, status, or value in any of those systems of the world that we consider to be so important. We are here by his sheer gift. In fact, the only way to enter the family, to enter onto the inside of this great new work, the only way to enter in is to accept God's shocking and subverting way of the cross, to be stripped of our pride by recognizing our great need and that the cross itself was for us and because of us, because of my sin and your sin. That's why God in the person of his son went to the Roman cross, was to pay the penalty and to suffer the cost of our sin. And because of that then and seeing that, it then leads us merely to exalt God for his mercy and grace and glory and love and kindness. These things that we don't deserve. We have no claim upon him. We have no right to be in this place. It's only because of God's mercy and grace. So the psalmist will say in Psalm 115 verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The only big deal in the new community is God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, exalting him and honoring him. So that's why God has worked in this way, Paul is saying, to keep us from boasting, because God knows the tendency and the propensity that each one of us has to make ourselves a big deal. Remember this, that it was our desire to become something bigger than we were, to become higher than we were, that led to the initial fall and all of the brokenness of sin and evil that resulted from that, that we continue to experience in our world today, for which we long for Jesus to return and set things right. All of that brokenness stems from this impulse inside of us to become higher than we are. Is it any surprise then, and this is the wonder of wonders, is it any surprise that when God acts climactically to overcome that sin and to redeem us from its grasp and from evil itself and from death itself, that he has done so in a manner and a way that subverts our systems of self-exaltation, our Tower of Babel building exercises and enterprises that we participate in weekly, if not daily. And in Corinth, long ago, God chose the have-nots of the day the lowly and despised, to make this point abundantly clear that there would be no ability for anyone to boast. I had this beautiful experience of visiting one of our oldest saints, Dorothy DeLandis, a couple of weeks ago, and she's nearing the end at age 101. And I looked at Dorothy when I was sitting on the couch with her in her apartment in Brookline, and I said, Dorothy, how's your faith? And this was her response. My faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a powerful word from a beautiful woman who's had a tremendous impact on this church over the decades. All other ground, that status, that, that worth, that sense of honor that we crave, that is sinking sand. 
in comparison to the rock of Christ. All of this is put to an end, and our primal sickness of self-exaltation and pride is mortally wounded because of God's world-defying, subversive ways of working through the cross. And we are then left to merely cast ourselves upon his mercy and his grace and to say, here I am, Lord. Nothing in my hands do I bring, but simply to your cross do I cling. And let me say, if there is no boasting before God, as Paul says in verse 29, he's actually got this in his mind as well. There's certainly no boasting before one another. The people in Corinth are dividing into factions and claiming to have some status within the culture around wisdom because of the teacher that they happen to follow and seeing themselves as better than others in the church. They're actually looking down their noses at other members of the church because of who they associate with. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul writes that none of us should be puffed up against another. And then he says this, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? To go back to the proverbial fishing story, the only ability that you had to be out on the boat and on that lake at that time was because God had blessed you with the time off and the resources to have that. And I think it's quite funny, actually, that the proverbial story of boasting and seeking vainglory is one about fishing, because what fisherman can take credit for that fish biting that hook? All that we have is the result of God's sheer gift and mercy. As we enter the season of Advent and prepare in a fresh way for the return of Jesus our King, do we glory in this new way of God that subverts and topples the way of the world? Or are we leeching off the world system still, trying to derive from them what we can only rightly derive and receive from the Lord himself, and thereby distorting the beauty, power, wisdom, and truth of the gospel that manifests in the church community that derives its sense of well-being, worth, value, honor, and status only from the Lord himself and no one and nothing else? Are we perhaps as we enter into the season in any way related to the church in Laodicea that says, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But at the same time, not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and that it is only from Jesus, only from Jesus, the crucified one, that we can get the riches that address our deepest poverty, true clothing that covers our shameful nakedness, and true sight that heals our hardwired blindness. It's only from him and from his grace. Having been so ministered to by him and by the shock of his cross, will we turn once again to seek the status of the world? having been so deeply loved, valued, and seen by God and affirmed, having been embraced as his adopted children by grace, will we then turn and try to seek the glory that comes from men alone? It is the love of God in Christ manifest on the cross that takes the sting out of our pursuit of vainglory. This love, as the wonderful hymn says, is vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. Will we allow this love to melt us once again, 
to fill our hearts and minds such that we can now put away childish ways, ways that are expired or out of date, dead-end ways of seeking life, to simply rest in the wonderful gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, and then to live out of that rest and fullness, out of that affirmation, that genuine glory that comes from God alone, in a manner that is fitting as a response to his indescribable gift. As the humble, loved, renewed, and empowered people that we are in him. God, we thank you for your grace and love and mercy. And we thank you for the ways in which you have worked to subvert the sins of our hearts. Lord, change me, change us. Grow us. Help us, Lord, to be set free. Help us to live as your children and to love as we have been loved. And we pray this for the glory and honor of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.